If you've ever witnessed a church leader ascend into heaven on a chariot of fire as the mantle of leadership falls to another, well, then you are part of a privileged few. For those who witnessed this miraculous transition from Elijah to Elisha, it was a sign that Elisha had been called to take over the sacred stewardship. There are many miraculous accounts to follow, but perhaps none more relatable than that of Naaman, an honorable Syrian captain who struggled to accept the simplicity of the miracle in his life. Now, if the prophet asked us to do some great thing, wouldn't we do it? Then why not the simple everyday things? I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. To me, some of um, the qualities of a good leader would be definitely humility, um, being able to submit when you're wrong. When I think about the qualities of a good leader, I, I think about the leaders I've had in my own life. And um, one, they're honest. They have integrity, like I know I can trust them. They're nice to you. I like that about my leaders, that young women, are that they like talk to me and ask me how my day's going. Often the really good leaders, especially when I was a youth and growing up, is they would take me to go serve with them. And that's, that's what taught me. That was one of the best ways that, that I learned growing up. When you have one figure that knows the way and you can trust that figure, then you can follow and have unity and produce like miracles. Welcome everybody. The topics for our discussion today come from our studies in 2 Kings chapters two through seven. And the first topic we're going to discuss is navigating changes in leadership. And the second topic is God can work miracles in my life. And to help us with our discussion, we want to welcome uh, one of our scholars, Luke Drake. Welcome back, Luke. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, Luke is the director of seminaries and institutes in Tampa, Florida. He has a passion for ancient scripture, and he is pursuing a PhD in ancient Mediterranean religions. Welcome, Luke. Thanks for having me. And sitting next to Luke, we have our special guest, Dr. Susan Matson. Welcome, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Dr. Matson is a, an author, a speaker, a coach, and a consultant on the subject of women and leadership. She has written six books on the subject and has presented before the United Nations. She and her husband, Greg, have four children and two grandchildren. We're very excited to hear from you specifically with these chapters. Thank you. So we're gonna jump into our first topic, which is navigating changes in leadership. Luke, would you mind giving us just a little bit of a historical context as we go into these chapters? Yeah, basic background would be, you know, you remember that David consolidates this united monarchy, but then the kingdom split. And so you've got a Northern kingdom and a Southern kingdom. The Northern kingdom is called Israel. The Southern kingdom is called Judah. And in the Northern kingdom, we have these prophetic figures that appear. So last week we read about Elijah, right? Who is uh, the LeBron James of ancient <laughs> prophets, right? Elijah's, uh, uh, he's, he's the great one. Uh, and he, he's a prophetic figure for 30 years. And in these chapters, Elijah's ready to leave. And so he needs to pick a successor. Uh, and God's gonna pick a successor with Elijah. And you've got these sort of, this band, this school of prophets who are there. And uh, Elijah's gonna make a choice and it's gonna be a, maybe a somewhat surprising choice. And then these chapters deal with that transition of prophetic power from Elijah to Elisha. Susan, I'm curious, you work a lot with leaders and just what would you say is one of the challenges that you, you see whenever there is a change from one leader to another? 
Well, first of all, a lot of us don't like change. Mm. And what's interesting, we push back at change, yet everything is about change. When we look at leaders, we get so attached. You love them mm -hmm. and you see their qualities and their styles. Mm -hmm. So we get connected to styles sometimes, when in reality, that's the leader not the leadership of the church. So leadership is more of a process, and that's what we have in the church. We have leadership that transitions. So can we talk about just personality-wise, mm. what is that shift like going from Elijah to Elisha? It's a great question. The Hebrew scriptures don't give us much detail sometimes in terms of their personalities, but I think you can tease out there are there are some differences, right? I mean, Elijah is this prophetic figure of power, kind of this wandering itinerant prophet known for his, you know, he wears this cloak. And when you come across Elisha, he appears to be like a farmer. And so you think of the difference between like a wandering prophet and a farmer. Farmers don't wander. They have to stay on their land, right? So the few details we have about their personalities, I think you do get some interesting differences there mm -hmm. about who the Lord chooses from one generation to the next. So we have this, um, this transition, and uh, today when we talk about, you know, if you get somebody in a new leadership position, it's a more of a spiritual mantle, a change in the mantle. Not so in the case here. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so you see this, uh, the, the, the appearance of this mantle first in 1 Kings 19. So Elijah has his cloak. Uh, he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. So he takes a physical cloak and puts it on Elisha, and this is sort of symbolizing, uh, you're next. And if you skip ahead to 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah has his mantle back on him, and he's got his cloak. And in verse 8 of chapter 2, Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. So why is this included? It's, it's meant to make you think of Moses, right? So this genealogical line of prophets of Moses, Elijah, now Elisha. And if you skip down to verse 12, this is after Elijah has been taken up into heaven. Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and he rent them into pieces. So he's mourning, he's tearing his own clothes in mourning. And then he took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from, from him and smote the waters and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elijah went over. So that's the final sign. By him taking that mantle, hitting the water and the water's part, it is now clear. Elisha is the new sort of prophetic lead in Israel. That's pretty um, different from how we do things today, right? It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> Susan, what are your thoughts on this transition, changing of the mantle? Well, that, uh, what Luke just talked about is so profound. And it's so obvious. I mean, I just picture the smoting the water and just this profound kind of thing. But I think there really is that mantle in the way that we use it today, right, that moves. I've seen it in Relief Society presidents. Mm -hmm. And what I love is it comes with this measure, increased measure of spirit, if we really are in tune with that, that's different. I think yeah. it's different. I'd love to hear from the audience on uh, some of your experiences navigating through changes in leadership. Anna Marie. 
So I just finished um, almost six years serving in a leadership calling. And one of the sweet things about finishing it was that um, I knew who was going to be um, taking my place. And I knew that God had called her and that those people I had been serving would be taken care of. And so that was a really sweet feeling to be able to finish that way. Just out of curiosity, what was that like for you? Like, how did that confirmation come to you as you were passing the mantle on to somebody else? I think one of the first confirmations I had was, you know, that they had called somebody and and just knowing who that person was. And I just felt a feeling that this was a good thing and that God had had a work for this person to do and that I had other things that I would be doing. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. From the perspective of Elisha, who is now taking on this major role, and as you said, Elijah is a big deal. Mm-hmm. What is it like from his perspective? What is he feeling as he approaches this new call that he's been given? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, again, sometimes the Hebrew Bible doesn't give us everything that we would like. We'd love to hear more from these characters, but I would have to imagine that there's some degree of insecurity there, right? I mean, Elijah serves for, you know, 30 years. And and we can tease out one little bit where Elisha, um, there's this interesting um, passage in here where he asks for a double portion of I love that. Elijah's spirit, right? And what he seems to be doing here is he's probably hearkening to inheritance language from Deuteronomy, where Mm. your oldest son gets a double portion of the inheritance. So all the kids get something, but the oldest gets double, right? And so maybe this is Elisha's way of saying, you've given me your mantle. There are a lot of other prophetic figures out here. Can I have, I need double. Like maybe he's feeling some insecurities. and, And one of the beautiful things is that Elisha, serves for twice as long as Elijah. He serves for 60 years, right? Mm-hmm. So in my mind, that's, that brings incredible hope and comfort. If you're feeling um, insecure about a calling that you've been called to, Elisha could be a, a real exemplar of someone who faced a similar situation and uh, faced it well and bravely. Why was it important for the people to see this transition? And Susan, in, in modern times, why is it important that the outgoing leader show support for the incoming leader. What's interesting in the way that we do leadership in the church is that it happens pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And then there's might be some coaching behind the scenes or so forth. It's not about you as the leader. I mean, if it is, we probably shouldn't have the callings in the church. If it's all about us looking good and we have have want to speak and we want attention, that's not what the Lord needs leaders to do. So really, if we are leading the way our Heavenly Father wants us to lead, we are really humble. We, we want success for the person that takes over. And mm-hmm. so we just want, in fact, we're probably praying for them. We're probably saying, give double measure to this leader that takes over. In this situation, why was it so important for the Israelites to see that, look, the mantle has been passed to Elisha now? I mean, I imagine uh, it's very similar to to social situations today. I mean, you fall in love with a leader. You know, you that leader's been uh, blessing people for 30 years. Sometimes it's hard to imagine someone new. And I think you see that throughout the history of salvation. Moses eventually passes the baton to Joshua, right? Elijah passes it to Elisha. John the Baptist to Jesus, right? In all of those, I think you can read between the lines and see 
disciples of one person, they, they need that confirmation that God will continue to work through someone who you're not familiar with yet. And, and you really do, especially a prophet, you love them. Mm. I mean, if you really feel in the spirit, doing what you're supposed to, you have this tenderness and love um, that is really deep. But we can continue. It's like when you have more children, you can love all of them, right? You can love each one. The more that we embrace change and love at the same time and admiration, all of those together, we're going to be better disciples of Christ. Yeah, I, I like that. With a change in leadership, there also comes growth. So I'd, I'd love to just ask the audience, how does it make you feel to know that God is always going to have a prophet to lead us? Juliana. Knowing that God always calls a prophet is uh, a way to say, if I really need guidance, God is going to be available to me. All right. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. You know, we have a wonderful quote from President Kimball who talks about that and just what it really means that God always has a prophet waiting uh, to serve us. He says, as one star sinks behind the horizon, another comes into the picture and death spawns life. The work of the Lord is endless. Even when a powerful leader dies, not for a single instant is the church without leadership, thanks to the kind providence who gave his kingdom continuity and perpetuity. We know as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that we will always have leadership and profit um, and that guidance on the earth and there will never be a time moving forward that we won't have that. And when we have faith and, and receive that personal revelation, we can, we can know that for ourselves and have that firm foundation continue with us. Susan, what advice would you give someone who may struggle when there is leadership change? I always talk to people about change. You know, first of all, personal revelation. But okay. second of all, we can shift our mindset to more change. More embracing growth. that change. Yes, exactly. Okay. This discussion's reminded me that one thing that Elisha's story can do is, is tell us that with change comes the promise of new miracles and uh, exciting new opportunities. Like with a new bishop, a new Relief Society president, a new called seminary teacher. Mm -hmm. Like these new individuals who may be unfamiliar to us now, there are gonna be new stories to be told mm -hmm. with under their direction, under their leadership that will be worth writing down and celebrating for future generations. Well, thank you so much for your comments as we talked about navigating changes in leadership. To me, a miracle is a true expression of God's love. Um, when we see miracles in our life, that's evidence that God is working in our lives and that He's aware of us. I had one experience. Uh, I was a poor college student, and I sprayed lawns for my living, for a job, and I would drive a big truck with a chemical tank on the back. And every morning I'd pray, because I'd never driven a truck like this before, and I'm kind of scared, and I got used to it. And I'm driving along the freeway, and this was kind of like a naming experience for me. You know, I, I, I hear this voice say, get off here at this exit, but it's like 25 miles away from where I'm supposed to get off. I'm like, that makes no sense. Why would I do that? God is aware of me, and even though not everything's perfect, not everything's super smooth all the time, I know that He's there for me because everything works out in the end. I pull off and I come up to a stop sign, and I'm at a complete stop, and I turn, and all of a sudden, my big chemical tank in the back started to slide and the bolts broke. 
and it slid and I had chemical, you know, fertilizer and pesticide and other things just kind of spewing. And right next to me was this giant open field full of weeds that probably could use that. Um, but if I had kept going where I would have been on the freeway as a big embankment and who knows what would have happened. And I remember just praying after that and saying, thank you. Thank you for answering my prayer. So the second topic we're going to discuss is God can work miracles in my life. I think it's important uh, before we dive into the specific miracles in these chapters that we understand what a miracle is. That's a great question. I mean, it's a term that we use in a lot of different ways. You know, in the ancient world, they said things like signs or wonders. Um, I think maybe a good working definition, at least for today, a loose definition is you can find it in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism and uh, President Oaks shared it in a recent talk. Uh, where he described it as a beneficial event brought about through divine power that mortals do not understand and of themselves cannot duplicate. I like that. I was thinking how so much of this is in the eye of the beholder, mm. right? Mm. Because today, uh, maybe we don't see the, the parting of the sea and some of those things, which are really a certain kind of miracle. There's a continuum of maybe small personal miracles to miracles that are like the ones we're reading about in, in Second Kings, right? So, so why does God use miracles? We see him throughout the scriptures, we see him in our lives. What is his purpose for using miracles? Uh, that's a, another fantastic question. I mean, I think there are probably, I think there are lots of answers to it, right? I think they can be demonstrations of God's love. They can be demonstrations mm -hmm. of God's sovereignty. They can be reactions of God to a child whose faith is powerful and it's God's chance to intervene in a particular moment. He might be testifying something to a large group of people. What each miracle is doing, I think, can vary from you know, event to event. I wanted to comment that in Laman and Lemuel's case, there were some big, big miracles to try and shake them up. Yet, if you weren't ready for the miracles, I mean, it did shake them up and they were obedient for a while, but they kept going off track, yeah. back and forth. So sometimes I think miracles are just to shake people up and get them back on track, but there's other work that we need to do to stay on track. Yeah, I'd love to hear from the audience. We hear miracles uh, talked about a lot in the scriptures in our own personal lives. Why does God use miracles? John. So... I mean, miracles, like what you mentioned before, I think it's important we forget throughout the scriptures, even the sacrament prayers, it's remember, remember. Mm -hmm. um, and in positions I've had in the church where I'm counseling with others, often they forget. Writing it down is key. I talk about like the miracles, I, I can go back and look and it becomes an anchor for me, but it's because I've written it down and it's helped me to remember them. So why do you think, John, why does God use miracles uh, to teach us? I think I really, for me, it gives me a place I can go back to and remember those and know, hey, God knows me. Uh, sometimes the miracles don't come that I want, but sometimes they come in ways that are totally unexpected. And it helps me to have faith in the Lord, to trust in Him. Well, thank you for sharing that. Okay, so I want to get into some of the specifics because there are several miracles that are mentioned in these chapters Let's start with the story that is very, a little more familiar perhaps, the story of Naaman. Do you mind giving us just a brief overview before we talk about some specifics? Yeah, if, you, if this is in chapter five of 2 Kings, abbreviated version would be you have this figure, Naaman, he's a military leader, 
of Syria, so not Israel, and he has leprosy. I mean, the word leprosy in the ancient world deals with many types of skin diseases. Mm -hmm. um, my sense is that this is a source of great pain. It's a, gr it's a source of social shame. Mm -hmm. You know, people are uncomfortable around, around you. I, I think this is just sort of a traumatizing okay. uh, affliction to have. Okay. In the second verse, they, uh, the story introduces this female character, uh, a slave, uh, a young girl who's been taken as a slave because of his conquests. And she's, in, in her duties, she mentions, I think, to Naaman's wife, saying, you know, there's a prophet in Israel named Elisha who could heal him. The king of Syria sends a bunch of gold and all these gifts to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel misunderstands. And he thinks, you want me to heal him? Like, and he thinks that maybe the Syrians are like setting him up for failure. You're asking me to do something that I can't do. I think this does two really interesting things. One, it's interesting that the king of Israel doesn't think Elisha, right? Mm -hmm. This is like almost a failure in leadership, right? Where you've got this powerful figure who doesn't get it. And, mm -hmm. and then the second thing is who does get it? The slave girl, right? Yeah. So this is, this is one reason I think why early Christians loved this story because it, you have people in high places who don't recognize God's power. And it's people on the, on the margins and the lower places who do. That mention from one girl moved to a miracle. So that connection that in a moment, a mention that we can make could lead to a miracle for us, for our family, for someone else. It comes in just a mention. I, I just really, that was profound to me. And that leads to the miracle. As far as the Jordan River goes, it, it, at this time period, it's known for being filthy and dirty, yes. which I think kind of leads into how miraculous it is that he is cleansed mm. through this dirty river. Yeah. He was expecting a prophet to come out, yet a messenger comes out and just gives him the message and then tells him to go down in this muddy, muddy river. And it, what was fascinating, again, for me, studying leadership is what happened. This wrestle of being offended <laughs> as a leader, you're being offended. I'm better than that. Why isn't he coming out and giving me respect? And he wrestles with that. And you can see the silence of the, the servants and the other people that are with him. And then he, he thinks, he wrestles, and then he moves forward finally. What it takes is humility. Mm. Humility is such a critical component of really strong leadership, even today. And you don't see that a lot. Yeah. I'm just really moved by, by the idea that it's the lower figures who get the prophets. And this, these are, the prophets understand the people. And so it's the people telling Naaman, look, if he'd asked you to do something great, you would have done it. He's asking you to do something little, do it. <laughs> you know, and so um, I think this is one reason why this story has just resonated through the centuries. Yeah. One thing that was really striking to me as well, when he immerses himself into the river, he actually goes all the way in and then comes all the way out. So it was really an effort mm. seven different times. Even on that six, you're not seeing anything different. Wow. But it's the seventh time that he comes out. And how does that relate to my life? Um, sometimes we are asked I have a couple of kids that are, have left the church. And sometimes we are asked as mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers to go um, 
emerge into this <laughs> dirty river. And Russell, and we keep trying over and over again. We keep trying and we come out and then we go back in and we try this process of saving souls and we don't give up. And we're on our knees thousands of times for these people. But we keep doing it even if we don't see any results because we know that seventh time or that 10th time or that 100th time that God will give us our miracle, that God will answer our prayers. We'll get our miracle in whatever that means, you know, to us. You know, and Susan, I love how you shared that, you know, and connecting with the story of Naaman and how sometimes we have to be persistent and keep trying because the Lord not, is not always gonna give us the miracle when we want it. And Elder Oaks has a great quote talking about this. He says, the will of the Lord is always paramount. The priesthood of the Lord cannot be used to work a miracle contrary to the will of the Lord. We must also remember that even when a miracle is to occur, it will not occur on our desired schedule. The revelations teach that miraculous experiences occur in his own time and in his own way. I'm sure Naaman would have loved to have just dipped once and be like, oh, that was easy, that was great. But yeah, I think it really does teach us how God works and there's always a process. So what are the things is Elisha going to do in these chapters? Yeah, so in these chapters, you see uh, miracles that are sort of military-based miracles and then a lot of miracles that are meant to meet the needs of individuals. And I think in footnotes, we'll talk about those ones for individuals. So uh, the raising of the ax out of the water, the multiplying of the widow's oil, uh, the purifying of the water. All right, thank you. Uh, You know, I love, Susan, how you, you, you kind of brought modern world together with this ancient miracle. And I think it's important for us to understand that miracles do continue to happen today. And we had a great question come in from one of our viewers. Just pay attention. How would you answer this question that we're about to hear? Hi, I'm Jeremy Calco from Colorado Springs, Colorado. My question has to do with the nature of miracles. So in the Bible, we see tons of examples of miracles, great happenings created by God. Things like uh, Elijah calling down a pillar of fire or splitting the waters of the River Jordan. So my question for you is, how can we in our everyday lives recognize the miracles that God is sending us and differentiate them from random happenstance? Thank you. That's a good question. Great question. All right, audience, you're on. How do we recognize the miracles that God sends us in our everyday lives? Yes, Vanessa. I think that when we remember God's nature as our loving Heavenly Father, we know that He is always there for us and we are entitled to expect miracles. And so if we live our lives in the attitude of expecting miracles every single day to occur, we can see that all the good things that are happening in our lives and everything that we might not understand is God working for our good because we know that he's always working for our benefit. What would you say would be a small miracle that you have seen in your life? I think a small miracle that I can see every day is the presence of God in my life feeling like I'm not alone when I remember all that he has done for me and also feeling his help in little ways, whether it's reminding me about something or showing me a way to go or sending someone to help me in my life. Thank you so much for sharing that, Vanessa. Any thoughts on that? I really think that the more that we are open to the Holy Ghost, Mm. the more that we are really wanting to feel the Spirit and the, the Holy Ghost in our life, 
that for for small promptings, that's that's when we're going to see the miracles too. It's all within that seeking answers to our prayers, my thoughts, you know, do, do I have a stupor of thought? Do I have that burdening in the bosom? All of those things are part of that. And when we're in tune, then we see the miracles that are around us. As I, I was thinking about how you used the word remember, and President Eyring once gave a talk called, Oh, Remember, Remember. <laughs> and in it, he gave a tool that's been meaningful in my life. And he said that for decades, every night, he wouldn't go to sleep until he had reflected on one way in which he'd seen the Lord's hand in his life, mm. and he would write it down. Mm. And But the magic of what he said is in this little detail. I'm, I'm gonna paraphrase a little bit. He says that it's, it was in the actual act of writing, of sitting down and trying to remember that God through the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance where he had been acting in his life. So if he hadn't sat down to write, he never would have seen God's hand in his life. And what I can attest to is that I've seen that in my life, that when I engage in this practice, that I've seen God's hand in my life by trying to remember through writing. There's research to confirm what he's saying. Really? Yes, the actual writing down things is powerful for our ability to remember. So we're talking about writing down these, these miracles uh, to help us remember. Uh, is there a caution when it comes to sharing these experiences with others that we should be mindful of? I think so. I mean, President Oaks has a talk on miracles, and he says most of the miracles we experience are not to be shared. Consistent with the teachings of the scriptures, we hold them sacred and share them only when the Spirit prompts us mm. to do so. Yeah, I, I agree with you and Dallin Oaks. <laughs> um, I think there are things in my life that um, are very personal, and I have miracles, and I share them maybe with my spouse or some mm -hmm. other people. And yet, there are a few that are, have been very powerful in my life, but I've, share, I've chosen to share that because I, I feel prompted mm -hmm. to do that. So I think there's really this personal, um, this personal decision that we make, but um, often we have miracles that we just keep sacred to ourselves and it's between us and, and the Lord. Very wise words, thank you. Well, thank you very much. This has been a very good, wonderful conversation. I'm excited to talk more about these miracles in footnotes, but this has been a great discussion on our second topic, God can work miracles in my life. I was very excited to hear about leadership from Susan because she is amazing. And some of the concepts that she brought up to the table were amazing and it was a great experience. The Holy Ghost today has taught me a lot. Um, I really have felt a lot of peace knowing that there's safety in following God's prophet. One of the biggest messages of the Old Testament is how much God loves His children. That He gives us so many chances to succeed because He, he just wants us to succeed. <laughs> Welcome to Footnotes, where we're gonna dive in a little deeper into some of these uh, topics and uh, chapters from 2 Kings chapters two through seven. I'm really excited where we can dive into some of these chapters. And we're gonna see that there's a really healthy relationship between the two topics today of miracles and leadership. Susan, I, I'm really interested on, on what you have to say to get a little more in depth. Um, I mean, you've written books about leadership. Uh, I, both of us, I'm sure, can uh, you know, share the same feeling. We wanna learn 
Uh, what can you teach us about leadership? Oh, that's a broad question. Yes. <laughs> I, I mentioned in the last segment, one of the things I do a lot in the community, but also in church settings, is help people understand what leadership is. And what we know from the research is that boys typically are socialized much more often to see themselves as future leaders than girls and okay. young women. And so I work a lot to try and help girls and young women see themselves as leaders. But one of the basics is that a lot of times we we define leadership or a leader in very specific ways, like a prophet, mm. like um, mm-hmm. the, an apostle. Yet it's a process of influencing a group towards a goal. And so a mother— with a bunch of teenagers or toddlers, I should say, you know, whatever that looks like. Is that not influencing people towards a goal, just to get them out the door to go to school or whatever? (laughs) And so one of the things that, that I truly, truly believe is that God needs more leaders coming out of this church. Mm -hmm. And that is every boy and every girl and every young man and every young woman, we need to have that confidence and that knowledge and wanting to step forward to lead, but we have to see ourselves as leaders. So, Where do we find that balance between everyone's a leader, but you also need to be a good follower? Well, leadership, you know, there's leadership, there's leader, but there's also leading. Okay. And there's, uh, you okay. know, you can lead for a moment. Okay. The first follower can be really impactful. And, and is that follower not a leader too? Mm. So there's this mm. more fluid nature of leadership than a lot of people see. I've had women in the church say, I want to be a leader, but I, I don't, I've never led. Didn't you just plan a ward event for mm-hmm. 200 people last week? But that's not leadership. That's, wow, okay. And I think more and more as we're commanded to engage in the community, to use our voices on social media, to do all of those things, all of those are acts of leadership and leading. So I'm much more broad and fluid. When I, when I look at these stories, Naaman, we talked about that already, I see the maid mm. as a leader, even the messenger. Yeah. In my own thinking, and I'll, Luke, maybe you can speak to this, I really did view leadership as one way. Mm. At any given moment, you can be a leader, depending on the setting you're in. Uh, Luke, from this narrative that we're mm. looking at, um, where do we see some of these different aspects of leadership? One of the you know, some of the ironies that play out in these texts is that you have people who should be leading because they've been given the authorities to do so. They have money, they have power, and yet they're precisely the ones who are more the more passive figures. It's servants, it's slaves. Uh, yeah, just because you have out. a title mm-hmm. doesn't mean you lead. You have a title. Mm-hmm. And sometimes without titles, we can be the powerful leaders. Um, so there's fluidity there. So I have an eight-year-old daughter. Oh, uh, I love it. <laughs> is there just a practical set of thoughts you would give me? I was struck by when you said that we socialize boys yeah. culturally differently than we socialize girls. In the church, we socialize boys and young men towards being leaders. But then what we have is girls and young women and women really deferring to other people. You see that often because, oh, oh, he went on a mission. He's got mm-hmm. all the answers. With your daughter, you have to work on things to help her claim leadership when she's doing something that le- she's leading, like helping with younger siblings and influencing mm-hmm. them. Call it leader. 
Mm. Oftentimes for girls, we say, well, she's bossy. She mm. could do the same thing as a boy. Wow. She's bossy, but you led, just using the word and getting her used to that. Yes. And then you being a follower as a father, if she has an idea, just say, that's a great, mm -hmm. great, you know, starting to use that that's language. Great. Those are, that's a few. That's beautiful. Do you, few think, do you think that we do sometimes a disservice to women in general um, from the male point of view of, in our efforts to, to protect oh. or <laughs> that, we, that we really uh, hinder their abilities to become leaders? Oh, yes. <laughs> what is so fascinating is sometimes it goes against your nature as men mm -hmm. who you're raised to protect. So let me just give you one quick study okay. because it's fascinating. So when you look at fathers, the fathers that are engaged, and, it, and this is caused more by fathers than mothers, by the age of two to three, through the actions of the fathers protecting, young girls ask for help three to four times more than young boys their same age. Mm. What I always say is think carefully when you're making decisions for your sons and daughters and think, should I only have boys mow the lawn mm. or should I have girls? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, what, what are you laughing okay, at? So I've got, to, I've got to tell this story. So both my parents are uh, immigrants to this country. And so they both have a very uh, distinct set of values that I was raised with. And so my dad was, okay, boys do the outside work and girls yeah. do the inside work. And so when I got married, and my wife is the only daughter, she has three brothers, both her parents are hardworking farmers. And so I still remember telling her, honey, you don't mow the lawn, okay? So her parents had a size business growing up, mowing lawns. And, in her mind, she's like, I will mow circles around you. <laughs> like, you don't tell me I can't mow the lawn. And it was just so funny. And for me, this is the this is gonna sound horrible. I was the thought of any of my guy friends driving by my house and watching my wife? wife mow the lawn, my pregnant wife. She liked to mow lawn. She, she yeah. loved it. You know, she just loved it. So yeah, that's but the thought you're story. talking about is like you have to challenge yourself mm -hmm. because am I going to look be looked down on because right. I'm the man? But I'm just saying, shake it up a little yeah. bit like um, and have us challenge ourselves on on how we speak to, how we encourage, and the the chores we give. Mm. Fascinating. Fascinating. So let's get into some of Elisha's miracles. We teased about it uh, in the earlier part of the, uh, the episode. We have this beautiful big ax in uh, front of us. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> this is not a paperweight. There no, is, uh, <laughs> this is heavy. This is a real ax. This is a modern ax composed of two parts. You've got the, this, the shaft here and then the ax head, which in you know, modern axes, these are nice and firm. This isn't going anywhere, but you can imagine ancient axes. You get a stick, you get some metal, you stick the metal on the wood and you're hitting a hard object and eventually uh, the ax head's gonna go flying. And that's what happens in, uh, in 2 Kings 6. You know, you've got this school of prophets that, and it looks like they live together, right? They, they, this is, again, we're 3,000 years ago. Things function a little bit differently than they do now. So you've got this school of prophetic figures and they're living together and they go to Elisha, they say, our house is too small. There's not enough room. <laughs> like, can we go down to the River Jordan and cut some wood and build a bigger one? He says, go for it. They say, will you come with us? He says, sure. They take their trusty ax and their, and, and what happens? The ax head goes flying off and into the water, right? And, uh, and that's where the miracle comes about, where um, here in verse five, but as one was felling a beam, the ax head fell into the water and he cried and said, alas, master, 
for it was borrowed. So even worse, it's not just your axe, it was someone else's axe. Isn't that the most, just that feeling when you borrow something and you break it, you're like, oh no, I'm in trouble. Right. Uh, And the man of God, so that's Elisha, said, where fell it? And he showed him the place, and then Elisha cuts down a stick, throws it into the water, and the iron, this, this is where the King James is awesome, right? Because, <laughs> you know, if you read a modern translation, it'll say, he threw it in there and made the iron float. The King James, and the iron did swim. English moves, in the early 17th century, that, this is how it works. The iron starts to swim, beautiful. Um, a lost ax head in the scope of human history, in the scope of human tragedies, is not a footnote, right? This is nothing. And I actually, I find that quite meaningful. I like the idea that in these chapters, you have this brief little tender mercy, right? Of God saying, this matters to this group of guys, the person whose ax they borrowed. And so God's grace and goodness is is brought about through this this very minor Because without this story, Right, nothing's gonna change as far as- no, what, the history know. of salvation has yeah. not been yeah. affected by, yeah, yeah. But, no. but I love how you mentioned that. It is really neat to have this little tiny showing that, look, God does care about the individual. And, and that love, I mean, just knowing that you matter. Yeah. And you feel that moment of love, even in an accent that swims, I love right. that. Well, and I think one reason why, at least in my experience, uh, Christians or Latter-day Saints are uncomfortable talking about small miracles like this. Mm-hmm. It's in the face of larger miracles that don't happen. So if someone testifies, I pray, they, you know, they testify and say, I prayed that I would find my keys and I found them. You may have a listener who said, well, I prayed that my mother wouldn't die mm-hmm. and she did. So how is it that God would, and so how is it that God would answer this minor miracle and not yeah. address mm. mine? And I think, so for some saints, it's on, they don't like these stories because of the many times in which God doesn't yeah. uh, answer those prayers. So and I, do you think they dismiss these small ones as, that's just a coincidence, that wasn't a real miracle? I think so. I, I th- okay. And I think they feel like almost hurt. I mean, they, yeah. they feel wounded if they say, look, I prayed that my parents would stay together or I prayed that I'd be able to finish my mission or I prayed that, you know, my dad would would recover from cancer and he didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and or so that I, my mission as a mother, that my missionary would stay safe. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. W- would be have health or mm-hmm. and and why is my missionary one that's mm-hmm. really struggling with safety or health? Right. Yeah. And I think it's important to empathize with that. I mean I think it's important to take seriously the pain that lies behind that question, but then also just to contextualize it more broadly saying, look, there are some prayers that are big and go answered, crossing the Red yeah. Sea. There are some prayers that are small and go answered. Lots of ax heads have not floated, right. <laughs> despite being <laughs> borrowed. And then there, you know, there are some, you know, miracles happen on a large scale and a small, and sometimes our prayers are answers and sometimes they aren't. And we have a, a kind of a perfect example of a pretty big miracle that takes place. In addition to the small one, now we get a, we have this idea of well, this miracle of Elisha and the widow. And yeah. it would be interesting to kind of compare those side by side to see how God does perform these small miracles, but then there's some pretty big ones that he also mm-hmm. takes care of as well. Yeah, so in chapter four, the miracle you're referring to, we have this recent widow, her, her husband was one of these prophetic figures who's with Elisha and he dies, and he dies leaving the family in some debt. Um, so 
one way to contextualize this that might help us understand the gravity of the situation. Um, in the ancient world, if you had debts, you could lose your kids. Like one way to, they'd take your kids into slavery. And so she's saying, wow. we have, wow. I have two sons, I have debts, they're gonna take my my kids. And and slavery in the ancient world is as awful as you can imagine, mm. right? Yeah. And 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 also a widow. Widows are the mo one of the most exploitable groups in the ancient world. So widows and often orphans are usually paired together in Isaiah throughout the uh, Hebrew Bible. So here you have the plight of this woman. And so what does Elijah do? He, he enacts a really beautiful miracle. Starting in verse two, Elijah said unto her, what shall I do for thee? Tell me what the hast thou in the house? And she said, thine handmaid hath not anything in the, in the house, save a pot of oil. Then he said, go, borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons and shalt pour out into all those vessels and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went, so you get what she's saying, go out, go to your neighbors, borrow a bunch of things that can hold stuff. So she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons who poured the vessels to her and she poured out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her son, bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, there is not a vessel more and the oil stayed. It's kind of hard to figure out. It might be helpful to read in another translation what's happening here. Um, so if you read in verse six, when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. But he said to her, there are no more. So we filled them all. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God. And he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your children can live on the rest. So she has one little vat of oil. They bring in a bunch of other containers and miraculously she just keeps pouring and they just keep getting filled and filled and filled until they're all full. Sell what you have. And he redeems this, takes, brings this person out of economic uh, devastation and keeps their family keeps together. Keeps their family together, yeah, right? Beautiful. Yeah. So again, I love seeing these comparisons of the small miracles and, and the, the faith, big miracles. The faith that she has. And I love, of course, with the work that I do with girls and women, I love it when we find good stories of women with faith. And not just faith to just think about faith, but faith to act. Yes. Talk about women of strong faith and action. How did I, how is this not one of these miracles or stories that we just prop up, I think there's so many powerful lessons from this next miracle. Do you mind talking about this one? Yeah, this next one is, I think, uh, one of the crown jewels of this of all of, of this section that we're reading this week. Um, I'll just start. Maybe I'll start reading, and we can pause as we go. And there are some good, strong, you know, leadership qualities as well that we can see. I would know, love for you to jump action. in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> please. So, so this is in verse eight of chapter four. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. Let's let's explain what that means. Uh, a wealthy woman. So there's a okay. woman who's who's got money. Um, uh, who, and she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. And she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is an holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. Let us make a little chamber. Let's make a little place for him to stay. And I pray thee on the wall. Again, the King James makes it a little challenging. So another way to read that would be, let us make a small roof chamber with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that he can stay there whenever he comes to us. So this story begins with this woman who sees an opportunity to bless. I love the principle too of she saw something and just fixed it. Yeah. God doesn't tell her to do it. She's not waiting for revelation. She's got a brilliant idea and, she, and it's actually gonna change her life. The fact that she has the idea and acts on the idea, that drives this whole narrative. You mm -hmm. have this brilliant person who says, 
I'm going to take initiative. So she builds him this place, and I'll, I'll just maybe summarize this next yeah, part, and okay. then we'll, we'll jump in a little bit. And she has this place built for him to stay, and uh, Elisha's very grateful and says, what can I do for you? What do you need? And she says, we got everything we need. You don't need to talk to any kings for us. And then someone goes, <laughs> someone goes to Elisha and says, she didn't tell you this, but her husband's quite a bit older, and they haven't been able to have kids. So Elisha then goes to her and says, you know, essentially, in the name of the Lord, you're going to have a child. Now, let me, let me read what she says, because I, I actually pretty moved by this. It's in verse 16. And he said, about, about this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. So in due time is what that's saying. Mm-hmm. In due time, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thine handmaid, right? Don't lie to me. She didn't believe it. I mean, it was her poor heart. Too painful. Yeah. Like, <laughs> don't, please don't mess with me right now. Like, we've wanted this. And notice the language here. This shows kind of the artistry of the Hebrew Bible. You're going to embrace a son. That's kind of a rare term. Mm. Like, you're going to embrace a son. But notice it's going to, there's an irony here and a painful sort of irony that's going to emerge. The woman conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said unto her. I'm in verse 17, according to the time of life, in, the, in due time. And when the child was a little bit grown up, I wouldn't think of him as an adult, it fell on a day that he went out to his father's to the reapers. So he goes out to the sun where they're working and he said unto his father, my head, my head. So this might give us insight into what it's like to be an ancient person, to have illness and disease. Mm-hmm. Like a kid just start, maybe it's sunstroke, something, but yeah. pain, right? And he said to the lad, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees until noon and then died. And another way to translate that verse 20, the child sat on her lap, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. until noon and he died. So she, he dies in her embrace, right? Wow. You'll embrace a son. So you now have this, this woman whose life has been miraculously changed and now shattered. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And you'll notice then what she does in 21. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, closed the door on him and left. And then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys so that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And the husband said, why go to him today? It's neither new moon nor the Sabbath. Like, you know, it's not a holy day. Why would you go talk to a prophet? She said, it's gonna be all right. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not hold back from me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So again. I love the urgency yes, there, that right. action, that faith and that action that no, we don't need to sit around and wait. I mean, my son's dead, mm-hmm. but she had faith that something could happen. And then she stepped forward, she acted. So she goes to find Elisha. Uh, And then when she came, this is 27, when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by the feet. So she seizes this prophetic figure. But Gehazi came near to thrust her away. And the man of God said, let her alone for her soul is vexed within her. And the Lord hath hid it from me and hath not told me, saying, I have no idea what her situation is. God has kept it from me. So then she said, did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? I mean, she's not saying, I... Are you playing with me? Why did why did you do this? You introduced love into my life and now it has been taken mm-hmm. away and I didn't even ask for it. You thrust this upon me, right? And then he said to Gehazi, gird up thy loins and take up thy staff. And that's where the rest of this chapter goes is this now this healing occurrence mm-hmm. where they travel back together to the boy. You get a sort of ancient ritual that looks very strange to us, but it's it's, it's this prophetic figure seeking to imbue life into this child. And that's what happens. And the story ends in verse 36 and 37. After the boy 
sneezes seven times and comes back to life, right? <laughs> Beautiful detail. 36, he called Gehazi saying, call the Shumamite. So he called her. And when she came in unto him, he said, take up thy son, like embrace your son again. Then she went in and fell at his feet. So it's the same falling of the feet, but now it's in a different context. And before this is, it's an accusation. And now it's, she's falling to his feet. She bows herself to the ground and she takes up her son. Do you know what I love about this is that we're all human. Mm. I look back and I say, these trials that I've had, oh, now I get why Mm. I was supposed to go through that. Now I'm prepared for the opportunity for that future only God can see because of those trials. I know I went a little broader, but. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. So Luke, um, there was a a certain passion as you were talking about this woman and the pain and something she was going through. What is about this story that connects with you? I mean, my children mean a lot to me. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, the loss of a child is without question my biggest fear. And I'm sort of perpetually amazed at what ancient people went through to give us what we have, like just to not putter, like to not die out as a human race so that we could continue. And so I think of uh, the traumas, I think of the violence, I think of uh, infertility. Yeah, so I I think I read a story like this and when I see an ancient person in pain, and and because this is where I I spend most of my life is Mm -hmm. thinking about the ancient world and thinking about these ancient people who are really no different than me, they're just, I'm just born in a much better set of circumstances. Yeah. I mean, it does, uh, it does speak to me. Texts like these are a beautiful reminder that miracles happen large and small. And it's good to remember that and believe that. Thank you. So Susan, as we wrap up this discussion, which has been so fun, by the way, um, I just, I would love to hear what was the kind of the driving force behind you pursuing a career in, in leadership and in teaching others how to lead? Well, I I have to say that I didn't plan on working as a professor, never planned on that. Mm. However, I did in my own patriarchal blessing Mm -hmm. have a piece um, that I would continue to pursue my education, my scholastic education. Mm -hmm. I saw my father do that. But the most important thing I knew is that I needed to prepare for how God would use me. As I did that and as I opened my mind to other possibilities, it's looked different. But as I go through each step of my education, the different phases of kids, then you know you get to a point and you just say, how can I, you know, be your hands? Mm. And you, you know, you get that courage, you get that confidence, and you just are ready. Susan, thank you so much for what you shared about leadership. And Luke and I, as, as fathers of daughters, we really appreciate your insights. Thank and you. I really do believe that we, will, we are on that path to helping our daughters become better leaders. So thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we want to invite you again. As you've watched and listened, if you have felt any prompting or impression from the Holy Ghost, that you will take the courage and follow those promptings. Please join us next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting. 